If the streaming charts are true, then there's a good chance this past holiday you joined us in a fun family viewing of the collapse of America with Netflix's new film, Leave the World Behind. The film is many things, including pretty good, but most notably, it's a conspiracy theory built on racial division and brought to you by former president and first lady, Barack and Michelle Obama. On one level, this is a classic disaster movie, a genre I personally love, and I enjoy this one too. There's some great set pieces, it's stylish and cinematic, and the whole thing feels pretty believable, which makes it an effective and unnerving thriller. At another level, it's a perfect manifestation of America's cynical elite nihilism, which one would expect from the creator of the dystopian Mr. Robot. Make no mistake, there is reason to worry. Our country is facing several forms of actual collapse. According to Gallup, perception of race relations, which were at near all-time highs 20 years ago, have absolutely cratered starting in 2014. Surveys by the University of Chicago found that patriotism, religion, having children, and community involvement are all in free fall as important values for Americans, especially among the young and politically progressive. Mental health, especially among young people, has tanked, and with it, life expectancy through deaths of despair. About the only thing on the rise in America right now, besides prices at the grocery store, is the belief among 18 to 24 year olds that Jews as a class are oppressors. Uh-oh, talk about a canary in the coal mine. 1930s Germany is calling. They wanna make sure we're stocked up on brown shirts. Against this backdrop, Leave the World Behind feels downright prescient. It's an uncomfortable mix of warning and wish fulfillment about national collapse that just happens to be executive produced by the Obamas. Their role makes this weird and dark film even weirder and darker. It also makes it a kind of Rosetta Stone for the most pernicious progressive conspiracy theories tearing at the fabric of our society. It's a bizarre move for a man who is the embodiment of the American dream and our triumph over the worst parts of our past. Then again, he proclaimed hope and change, yet presided over the start of our cultural embrace of catastrophe. These are the themes of this movie and the challenges of our times. If you like these video essays, please be sure to like, subscribe, and ring that notification bell so you won't miss the next one. And I look forward to some especially radical discourse in the comments below. Before we get started, a quick heads up that there's light at the end of this dark tunnel. So if you find your way to the end, you'll be much happier for it. Okay, let's begin, shall we? First off, while I am a filmmaker by training and trade, I'm not here to provide a full movie review. Instead, it's useful to see this movie through the lens of its conspiratorial vision of American culture, modern race relations, and our moral standing in the world. Its themes have permeated our culture as well as our campuses. It's important for us as adults, and especially as parents, to confront this vision and understand where it goes deeply wrong so that we and our kids can escape its siren call to nihilism, disempowerment, and despair. It's a dark vision of deep division, bizarrely presented by America's first black president and first lady. That's 
pretty crazy in and of itself. Why would a president make a dark tale of the country's collapse the first scripted movie of his ironically named Higher Ground production company? According to the director, Sam Esmail, it's not really a message film. It's more of a reflection on where we're at as a society. But if there is a message, it's a warning. And quite a reflection it is. The publicity of the film has gone out of its way to note that Obama was very passionate about the underlying source material and gave notes all along the way from script to screen, especially about the characters and scenario. So let's talk about these characters because holy cow, they are both a critique and a caricature of modern America. Julia Roberts plays a tired, angry, super Karen who's surely paid 2,500 bucks maybe more than once, to be beaten with Robin D'Angelo's white fragility over dinner for three hours. And for good reason, because she appears to be an actual racist. This is your house. Ethan Hawke plays the emasculated, bumbling white man, incapable of doing anything other than getting falsely accused of being a sexual predator. I can barely do anything without my cell phone and my GPS. I am a useless man. Their daughter is the zombified Zoomer on the autism spectrum, whose only friends are the cast of friends. Their son is a stand-in, basically non-entity, who also happens to be a creeper. Toxic masculinity abounds. Mahershala Ali plays the stoic, courageous black financier, a male Mary Sue who just happens to evoke the image of the film's presidential producer. His daughter is an angry activist, sort of Black Mirror Karen, whose time at Columbia or NYU has hardened her to be even more bigoted than her super Karen nemesis, if equally cynical. I wonder what it is about us that makes you so mistrustful. Oh, and sprinkle in some Kevin Bacon as a MAGA gun nut prepper, some newly fashionable Tesla bashing, and overtones of a resurgent and revenge-ready Mother Earth, and you have a perfect picture of what America looks like, to our elite tastemakers at least. Here's a really quick summary of the plot before we dive into its conspiratorial dystopian message. Mild spoilers incoming. All right, here we go. Roberts rents an incredible Airbnb in the Hamptons for her family because she hates everyone and everything. But then I remembered what the world is actually like. And I came to a more accurate realization. I hate people. The internet stops working and an oil tanker weirdly runs aground, suggesting that there's some trouble ahead. The posh black family who own this multi-million dollar mansion show up dressed to the nines, looking for refuge in their own home. And Roberts is weirdly off-put by them. I don't feel comfortable staying in a house with people I don't know. Inexplicable and unnatural racial tensions abound from that point on. Well, ain't that the pot calling the kettle black? Ruth. Nature gets weird and ready to pounce. Ali's character reveals that his elite billionaire client had made some financial moves, suggesting that something terrible was afoot. But when events like this happen in the world, the best even the most powerful people can hope for is a heads up. And it turns out it's as bad as you could imagine. The start of a civil war, World War III, or both. Last warning, spoiled kid spoiler alert. Their zombie Zoomer daughter selfishly sneaks off to watch the finale of Friends as the world burns. Roll the credits. Now, 
according to the original book's author, his intention was for this story of doom to be a kind of analogy for the so-called climate crisis. But as he explained in several interviews, this alleged disaster is just too slow to see or maybe isn't a pending disaster at all. So he opted for the dramatic speed of a multi-pronged attack on the US homeland. What remains of the climate crisis are strange encounters with anxious deer in the woods. Apparently, the Hamptons are about as good as deer population control as California is at forest management. But climate catastrophe is not the primary elite conspiracy theory worth focusing on here, though its contribution to our kids' mental health collapse cannot be overstated. Instead, let's consider this chillingly familiar moment of revelation from the film. There was one program in particular that terrified my client the most. A simple three-stage maneuver that could topple a country's government from within. The first stage was isolation. Disable their communication and transportation. Make the target as deaf, dumb, and paralyzed as possible. Setting them up for the second stage. Synchronized chaos. Terrorize them with covert attacks and misinformation. Without a clear enemy or motive, people would start turning on each other. Done successfully, the third stage would happen on its own. What's the third stage? A coup d'etat. It's a war. Collapse. This program was considered the most cost-effective way to destabilize a country. Because if the target nation was dysfunctional enough, it would, in essence, do the work for you. So, is this a sincere warning? Is it a carefully crafted Freudian slip? A strangely scripted moment of radical transparency? One thing is for sure. It is chilling. And one can be forgiven for seeing this and instantly recutting it in our heads, but pulling from the actual news as B-roll. Activate trailer voice mode. Cue the ominous music. In a world on the edge, storm clouds are gathering. A simple three-stage maneuver can topple a country from within. Stage one, isolation. Life in this country changing in unimaginable ways. Lock people in their homes. You must stay at home. Restrict travel. Force them to hide behind masks. Stage two, synchronized chaos. Violent protests raged following the death of George Floyd. Exploit an isolated event to spark violent riots across the nation, pulling back first responders to allow cities to burn. Stage three, turn the population against each other through a coordinated focus on our most primordial tribal divisions. Convince them that invisible systemic forces of oppression are everywhere and watch as they tear each other apart. The conspiracy is real. Be afraid. Be very, 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 very afraid. All right. Let me apologize because what I just did is a kind of perfect example of supercharged fear industrial complex production. I produced TV promos for a decade, so I know how this game is played. In a world down under where right is left. We gotta go left, dude, it's right. And left is wrong. 
I'm not here to be part of the problem. I want you to see all of this for what it really is. It's a tool of narrative making, of emotional manipulation. That's what this film is too. It is at once trying to alert us to dysfunction and division in our society while actively adding to that dysfunction and division in the process. One could argue that these are the defining, contradictory themes of the Obama presidency itself, exposing themselves in cinematic form. The darkest, most destructive conspiracy at the heart of this movie is what it assumes to be true. It's what permeates all of the relationships that President Obama allegedly took care to scrutinize. To paraphrase political scientist Wilfred Riley, the biggest conspiracy theory in our nation by far, is that there exists a sort of invisible racism inside the zeitgeist so potent that it explains all race and power relations in our country, yet is so subtle that it has to be explained to normal people by sociologists. Invisible, ever-present, systemic racism and oppression is the progressive, critical conspiracy theory that this movie and countless other cultural products is trafficking in. It's an overwhelmingly false narrative, and it is unsupported by clear-eyed reviews of the facts by honest researchers like Riley himself, Roland Fryer, Heather McDonald, Thomas Sowell, Glenn Lowry, and many, many other scholars. Yet for mostly political and ideological reasons, this pernicious critical conspiracy theory masquerading as so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion is the dominant operational worldview of our university system. It is infused into our K-12 schools. It infects our corporate world. And it is the subtext and too much of the actual text of the Obama's first scripted movie. You don't need a sociologist or film theory professor to decode it for you. It's right there in the dialogue. I'm asking for you to remember that if the world falls apart, trust should not be doled out easily to anyone, especially white people. Even mom would agree with me on that. It's frankly hard not to bring back from the vaults Michelle Obama's declaration in 2008, despite having already achieved ample personal and career successes that. For the first time in my adult lifetime, I'm really proud of my country. Apparently that pride was fleeting because her film drops us into a miserable America where most people hate themselves and each other, where the only common ground to be found is in shared recognition that people are all oppressive, lying, greedy, power-mongering scum. We f each other over all the time without even realizing it. We f every living thing on this planet over and think it'll be fine because we use paper straws and order the free range chicken. And the sick thing is, I think deep down we know we're not fooling anyone. I think we know we're living a lie, an agreed upon mass delusion to help us ignore and keep ignoring how awful we really are. This is the part of the Venn diagram where we overlap. I agree with everything you just said. Man, can we please go back to the vapid platitudes of hope and change from 2008? It's not clear what exactly this movie wants any of us to do, but if it wants us to find unity as a people so that we can survive an existential attack on the nation, it sure as hell doesn't model how to do it. What it models instead is the opposite. It models hatred. It models hopelessness, powerlessness, ugliness. This movie's main message 
is that we're all terrible, tribal, bigoted beasts of burden on the planet. It's telling us that we live in a Hobbesian, zero-sum world defined by oppression, where racial identity is not merely one of many facts in our complex lives, but the singular fact of our social order, so automatic and unconscious that our bigoted acts operate on silent autopilot. And so we are left vulnerable to attacks from without and especially from within and frankly, deserve what we've got coming to us. We've made a lot of enemies around the world. Maybe all this means is a few of them teamed up. Great message you got there, Mr. President. The critical conspiracy at the heart of this movie operates just like every other fringe simpleton explanation of our complex reality. It puts forward a grand, totalizing explanation of the world's problems. It identifies a source of these problems that is external to us as individuals, so we never really have to take personal responsibility for anything that goes wrong in our lives. And this appeal to our own laziness and insecurity makes it especially attractive when we're at our most vulnerable. Feeling lost after losing your job? Feeling anxious because you're a teenager? Feeling ripped off because you're drowning in student debt? Well, blame the rich. Blame the immigrants. Blame all white people or all men. Blame America. Blame the Jews. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl observed how, even in a Nazi concentration camp, it is possible to find hope. Because every person can retain one final human freedom, no matter what comes our way. The freedom to decide how we respond to our circumstances. But leave the world behind and the rest of the systemic, conspiracy-obsessed elite culture makers reject this final freedom. For them, you are a victim of circumstance. Your main challenge, should you choose to accept it, is to identify who is the oppressor and who is the oppressed in each and every circumstance. With messages like this coming from the Netflixes and Obamas of the world, is it any wonder that so many people feel our culture is heading in the wrong direction? Is it any wonder why race relations have collapsed or young people have rediscovered the proto-Nazi sadistic joy of Jew hatred? Pay no attention to the fact that what you're watching itself should be properly understood as a triumph of America's progress on race. Here is a movie released by a major studio starring huge Hollywood names, produced by our first black president, who, need I remind you, won re-election with a clear popular majority. Imagine for a minute that you went back to 1963 and told Martin Luther King Jr. that all of this would be utterly taken for granted just 60 years later. He would surely say, so my dream will become a reality. And he would be correct. Then, unfortunately, you would have to explain to him that a few other things happened that same year that put a little ding in his glorious dream. The very same studio, Netflix, also released a film highlighting the work of discredited intellectual lightweight and discrimination champion Ibram X. Kendi. Kendi's vision of anti-racism spits in the face of King's civil rights dream a dream rooted in our universal, inalienable human equality as expressed in the Declaration of Independence. Here's Kendi's perpetual race war model of progress from his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. The only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. And he definitely walks the walk when it comes to being an anti-racist, or really just a racist, himself. I don't think uh, white uh, people worldwide 
have really reckoned with how much their own personal identity is shaped by constructions of whiteness and, and how much um, that construction of whiteness uh, prevents uh, white people from uh, connecting to humanity. Or consider that in the very same year, the famous TED conference nearly shelved a talk by black writer Coleman Hughes titled A Case for Colorblindness, because striving towards this post-racial idea is now heretical on the so-called liberal left, and advocating for it caused a staff revolt. Universal equality under the law is not an idea worth spreading anymore, it turns out. What would King make of this bizarre turn in our culture? What would he make of the fact that our first black president turned multimillionaire movie producer was portraying America as a racist hellscape destined for collapse? What would he make of the fact that our cultural elite celebrate shysters with movie deals and Pulitzer Prizes for claiming that 1619 is our true founding, not 1776, or that racism in America today is no better than in Jim Crow, Alabama? I imagine King might ask how we could become so confused amid so much obvious progress. How could so many smart people embrace these critical conspiracy theories? First, like every dubious, unfalsified conspiracy theory, the invisible racism theory feeds parasitically on a kernel of truth. In this case, the truth is that all people everywhere are by our nature tribal and groupish to some degree. That America's history of slavery, Jim Crow, and racism is very real and gruesome. And that that history has left real and lasting scars on black families and communities, which explains some of the disparities in life outcomes for black Americans. Second, guilt among elites and polite society about this troubled history, combined with really the fear of being called a racist, has made them excessively deferential to any victimhood claim related to race in America. Third, that an industry of activist academics have frankly entrepreneurially exploited this elite fear to capture the education system and infuse it with this conspiratorial critical theory worldview. Fourth, that meaning-starved young people whose patriotism, religion, and engagement in community have collapsed find virtue and group validation in embracing this conspiracy. Fifth, New media technologies have enabled this brutish, vocal minority of activists and academics to hijack our collective negativity bias, resulting in wild exaggeration of rare, emotionally charged tragedies that overshadow reality or any positive stories to the contrary. Finally, the outrage that follows from these events accelerates all of the above and further cements the conspiracy as fact. This clip from Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter lays out the string of lies we've all been told with clarity and conviction. We're talking about George Floyd because there has recently been released a documentary film called The Fall of Minneapolis. It raises a million questions. Every one of these cases of a white cop killing a black man turns out to not be what we thought. So, you know, it wasn't that George Zimmerman didn't tap him on the shoulder and they had an argument and George Zimmerman shot him in the face. That's not what happened. George Zimmerman shot him with Trayvon Martin on top of him, seeming like he might be about to kill him, which is just different. Mike Brown did not die with his hands up. He was trying to grab the gun of Darren Wilson and was lunging at him over and over again. I always thought that with the George Floyd case, you couldn't argue with the basic facts. It seemed that this white cop had his knee on this man's neck 
which seems so barbaric, but that's what the photo that you always see looks like, and that he couldn't breathe because the knee was on his neck and that he choked and died of asphyxiation. That seemed to be the fact. But I always thought, yes, I've been happy to see Derek Chauvin going to jail. I have written about him as a murderer many, many times. And then look at this. Once again, we've been lied to. And the sad thing, Glenn, is that nobody, you know, left of center is going to admit that any of this could be valid. Truth will not matter on this one. This discussion opened my eyes to something that many of you have been taking me to task for in comments on other videos, that George Floyd's story was a lie. For example, he was saying, I can't breathe before any cop ever kneeled on his chest or neck. If Glenn and John, who've spent their entire lives exploring these issues with actual integrity, have come to that conclusion, so can I. You were right. I got bamboozled. And that realization is part of the motivation for making this video in the first place. You should watch the full discussion on The Glenn Show, and we'll put a link to it down below. But the point Glenn and John are making is clear. Neither of them, nor I for that matter, are trying to deny that bad things happen to black people in America, nor denying the human tragedy of those events when they do. But what they and a growing community of people who study these issues carefully are saying is that the critical conspiracy theory being pushed by our cultural elites and in this movie is profoundly false. It is a fringe conspiracy theory that's gone mainstream. It's a form of mass hysteria and a deeply destructive one at that. This conspiracy theory is destroying our relationships with each other. It's driving our kids to embrace bigotry and hatred in the name of anti-racism and social justice. And it's delivering a story to black Americans that is agency destroying and disempowering. We all know this to be true. It's common sense. Great leaders, teachers, and coaches don't motivate their people to success by telling them that they can't succeed or that the game is rigged against them. This story is wrong. It's a lie. And it's downright evil. To every dad and parent out there, it is your duty to your kids to protect them from this lie, from this deranged conspiracy theory. I believe it's the duty of every American now to stand up and forcefully reject this dishonest tale of doom. Each of us has to model courage on behalf of the real victims of this dystopian nightmare narrative, our kids. Remember, as of 2013, public perception of race relations in America were pretty good. This is the last great irony of leave the world behind, and one that I imagine that many of you thought right from the start. Our collapse into critical conspiracy theory culture began under Barack Obama's watch. He's the last person who should be anointing himself the 21st century's Paul Revere. Look, I remember election night in 2008. I didn't vote for Barack Obama because I knew that in the face of the global financial crisis, his answer would be even more massive Keynesian stimulus than Bush had ever done. But when he won, I smiled. I was proud nonetheless. His election was an achievement for American culture. As a nation, we'd gone from Jim Crow laws to a black president with a name that rhymed with our two most recent enemies, Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein, in as little as 40 years. That is wild. This wasn't the first time I was proud to be an American, like Michelle, but it was an amazing moment. And then he squandered it. It's time to call 
the whole thing off, this charade. And Obama should have done it. Obama and Eric Holder should have begun a process of reversing this moral panic. Instead, they, they fostered it. But that's not what we came here to talk about. That, I'll, I'll let that be the end you of know, my Glenn, I, I agree with you on that now. You're right. Those two men should have spoken truth to us in clear language repeatedly. If Obama had been as clear-spoken on the reality of race in America as he has been consistently about the importance of fatherhood, he could have made a real difference. Maybe he could have stopped the BLM fringe before it went so viral that it hollowed out the skulls of an entire generation. It's not too late for him to step up and be a voice for good instead of a profiteer of doom. All he needs to do is reject conspiracy theories and tell Americans the truth. And that truth is that America, though far from perfect, has come a long way on race. We are not living in the 1950s. We're living in a world where Barack Obama has already won two elections as president. The truth is that the scourge of slavery is indeed a scar on our history, but by no means a unique one for the globe. And that America's founding in 1776, yes, 1776, was a crucial moment of moral clarity that helped bring slavery to an end. Newly independent states in America quickly moved to abolish slavery and were the first governments of their size to do so. The truth is that it is a blessing, no matter your skin color, to be born in America, which is why we remain a giant magnet for immigrants. Maybe to right the ship, Obama's next movie can be inspired by one of the many thousands of Nigerian immigrants who come to this country and become more successful on average than native-born citizens. Here's a few fun facts about the Nigerian-American experience that should give pause to any critical conspiracy cultist. They have higher median incomes than native-born Americans, over 68,000 per year versus just under 62,000 as of 2018. They are more likely to be in professional or managerial occupations than native-born Americans, 46% versus 31%. And the red state of Texas is home to the largest population of Nigerian immigrants in America. Try squaring these facts with the vision of America and conservative Southern America in particular as a hopelessly racist hellhole. If you want a personal window into why the culture of Nigerian American immigrants is so effective, I encourage you to watch my interview with Akbar Baja Biamila. His story of success is a testament to the American dream, and we'll drop a link to it in the comments below so you don't have to search for it. Nigerians aren't alone, of course. The top of the income and success stats in the United States are not occupied by people of European descent on average, but by Asian Americans. Consider the leadership of the companies with values over $1 trillion. Apple, Tim Cook, an openly gay man. Microsoft's Satya Nadella, an Indian American. Alphabet's Sundar Pichai, an Indian American. Nvidia's Jensen Huang, Taiwanese American. Only Amazon CEO Andy Jassy is a straight white male. Not that there's anything wrong with that. You have to be a conspiratorial kook to look at modern America and see a hotbed of white supremacy. But that's not all. There is plenty of progress for native-born black Americans that we should be celebrating instead of trying to ignore. As Coleman Hughes noted in his article, The Case for Black Optimism, since 1999, the number of black students who earn a bachelor's degree has increased by 82 percent. 
As of 2017, 60% of black people at every education level said that they were doing better than their parents. Life expectancies are up. Teen pregnancies are down by over 63%. Thomas Sowell, one of our greatest living scholars and public intellectuals, offers a bewildering barrage of optimistic mythbusters in his most recent book, Social Justice Fallacies. But I'll pull one out just as an example. The 2020 census shows that more than 9 million black Americans have higher incomes than the median income of white Americans. More broadly, black household median incomes have been rising steadily over the past 30 years, from less than $37,000 to nearly $54,000 in 2022, adjusted for inflation. I could go on and on and on and on here. One last point, though. Let's talk about the police because so much of the critical conspiracy theory's potency is driven by incidents of law enforcement using deadly force against black Americans. The history of police violence here is real and painful. It sets the stage for our biases. Martin Luther King said, quote, we can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. But just consider this, a brilliant, award-winning Harvard economist named Roland Fryer, who just happens to be a black man from a broken home, was one of the leading scholars to actually look at the data. Here's how he summarizes his conclusions in the abstract of his blockbuster paper, An Empirical Analysis of Racial Differences in Police Use of Force. This paper explores racial differences in police use of force. On non-lethal uses of force, blacks and Hispanics are more than 50% more likely to experience some form of force in interactions with police. Adding controls that account for important context and civilian behaviors reduces, but cannot fully explain these disparities. On the most extreme use of force, officer-involved shootings, we find no racial differences in either the raw data or when contextual factors are taken into account. We argue that the patterns in the data are consistent with a model in which police officers are utility maximizers, a fraction of which have a preference for discrimination, who incur relatively high expected costs of officer-involved shootings. That's econ speak for you. Now, that's not a picture of a perfect world, but it is a refutation of the critical conspiracy theory's core narrative. And for his sin of contradicting the conspiracy theory, plagiarist Harvard president Claudine Gay destroyed Roland's research center and tried to run him out of the school. So those are a ton of facts to consider. But look, I'm not an expert. I'm just a dad who's sick and damn tired of watching millions of young Americans be fed a disempowering conspiratorial lie, a lie that they can't make it in America, that the system, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean, is rigged against them. I'm also a guy who's finally done with this twisted, barbaric idea that the only people with a right to speak on issues related to identity are those of that identity. This bizarre, censorious ethic is one of the tools used by the conspiracy theorists to silence anyone who questions its validity. I can hear it now. Shut up, John. You're not black. Sit down. This posture is a complete rejection of one of our most unique and powerful capabilities as human beings, our ability to empathize. To understand things, 
deeply by learning from the experience of other people. Yes, we can walk a mile in another man's shoes if we take the time to try. So, if you're one of those conspiracy cultists who refuse to accept any other truth, except so-called lived experiences and postmodern personal truths that used to be called opinions, well, too bad. The only way to test if your opinion is actually rooted in truth is by having it challenged. Limiting who can challenge your opinions will only keep you in the conspiratorial dark. I'm not gonna let the fact that my grandparents came from Italy in the 1900s prevent me from advocating for the universal dignity and unlimited potential of every American regardless of their race. And you shouldn't want me or anyone else to do so. Let's all pursue truth with a capital T together. The lesson here for every American, but especially for our kids whose lives are just getting started is simple and clear. We remain a land of opportunity, period, full stop. No race or class of people can be oppressors because oppression isn't an identity. It's a behavior performed by individual people. So take each person as they come and judge them for their actions, not what you think you know about them from across a room. And beware of cowards, criminals, and conspiracy theory kooks on college campuses or corporate HR departments trying to feed you disempowering, fact-free nonsense. They are trying to control you for their agenda. Don't give them the satisfaction. No matter what you look like or who you love, you can make it in America. There are fewer barriers standing in your way than ever before. So go after your dreams, follow your spark, Put your freedom to work for you and discover what you're capable of because no one else can tell you that. America isn't perfect and it doesn't guarantee your success, but for all its faults, it's never been a better place or a better time to pursue your happiness. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Dad Saves America podcast. If you did, make sure to subscribe so you won't miss the next episode. It also really helps us out when you leave us a good rating wherever you listen to podcasts. For more content like this, including video versions of these conversations, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash dadsavesamerica. 